there's something pervasive in the scientific community that has become anti-breakthrough, that anything too groundbreaking is uh, definitely uh, it, dangerous. Yeah, and you, you, you can actually, um, you know, you can speculate on the reasons why that's so, and of course I, I have um, a list of reasons, but first just look at the evidence for, for what, what you're suggesting. And um, the way you can, you can do this is to ask yourself the question, during the past three or four decades, you know, recent past, how many scientific breakthroughs can you name that have changed the world? Now, I don't mean technological breakthroughs because everybody knows about smartphones and internet and, and all kinds of things. Uh, and that's spurred on by, by monetary interest. But if you think of fundamental, fundamental breakthroughs akin to, say, uh, the splitting of the atom or the structure of DNA or something like that or the periodic table, or how many can you name? Uh, that not promises of breakthroughs like hey new drug discover that may cure cancer that's a promise of a breakthrough I mean established fundamental scientific breakthroughs that have changed the world how many can you name that have occurred in the past several decades and I've asked this question to many people and um, you know they look at me with a blank stare what, what, what are you talking about and it's really difficult to uh, to name fundamental breakthroughs of that magnitude it's a paradox because you think it's a paradox because the amount of money that's being spent on science compared to say a hundred years ago when breakthroughs came every two or three years I mean magnificent breakthroughs and now with extraordinary amounts of money we have very little so that's what I would put up as the evidence for what you're suggesting that there aren't breakthroughs uh, that are happening what's the reason? I think there are many but I, I think that um, that the uh, way of supporting science now is is part of it. A hundred years ago, scientists were supported either by a benefactor who believed in them. It didn't matter what they did or said. Once they believed in them, you know, they were going to support them. Or coming from a wealthy family where the money is is uh, is plentiful, and and so those people could press on. And if they had something interesting, they had to convince perhaps two or three people who. Um, you know, who are the, the masters of the field. Today, it's necessary, first of all, to convince hordes of people because science has grown so big and that any one scientific community has multiple leaders and multiple people that need to be convinced of any breakthrough. And another is that when you, uh, when you have a new scientific finding, it usually steps on the toes of the orthodox community. And those people are not without egos, not without interests. They don't want to be wrong. And, and so there's a tendency for people to uh, use the power and control that they have to repress scientific breakthroughs. And I've seen numerous examples of this where, where a breakthrough, a potential breakthrough looks very promising. And what happens is that the person tries to get funds to get more evidence to test further this uh, potential breakthrough. So they go to the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation or the equivalent in different countries and they say, here, uh, for example, I have evidence that the earth is round and everybody else thinks, the whole community knows that the earth is flat because after all, you look around you and everything looks flat, right? And hey, you know, I have these satellite pictures and they, they show 
potentially interesting preliminary evidence around this. And, and, and by the way, my friend took off from Seattle and flew all around the world, flew west and came right back to Seattle. So, so I've got this preliminary evidence uh, that the earth might actually be round instead of flat. Please, could you give me some more money so I can get, you know, study this further and see if, if this outrageous idea is true. So, so what happens is, of course, uh, some, somebody receives the application from the institute and says, hmm, this looks pretty interesting. We'll get the experts in the field to review it because obviously this is such an important, important potentially important finding that only the experts should review it. So who are the experts? The flat earth people. What's their response? Entirely predictable. Oh, this is the biggest nonsense I ever heard. No funding. And that's, uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but this is what happens to, to, um, to proposals in virtually every field. There are so many uh, uh, challenging ideas out there. I've, I, I, my own experience is in two or three fields, however, I've, I've dipped into numerous fields and people come to me because they know I have some interest and they begin to alert me to to potential uh, revolutionary ideas in other fields. And I've come to know many fields now and I see that there's hardly a field you can think of where there's not an alternative point of view that looks cogent. Some are nonsense, but some of them are really cogent. And these have a hell of a hard time to make it. Uh, they're, they're just scratching for funds and trying to make some headway, but at every turn, there are obstacles. But how do we, like you're saying, you know, maintain the rigors of the scientific method while still remaining open-minded? I think the system needs to change. Uh, of course, everybody needs rigor. We, n nobody will speak for, for in favor of sloppy science that goes... It goes without saying, but uh, rigor doesn't necessarily equate equate to orthodox points of view. In fact, if you look at many of these uh, potentially revolutionary views, the rigor there is is just as as clear as in the orthodox view. Sometimes even more, because many of these people can't make a case at all without extreme uh, rigor. But the system needs to change. Uh, the system is not doing well, and and I think that you have difficulty finding a scientist in the field who thinks that the system of doing science is in good shape. There are complaints all around and and one of the complaints I hear the most is is the one that I just mentioned about that any revolutionary idea has almost no chance of making it through the system. And so I've been thinking about this issue for quite a few years and I've come, come to the conclusion that um, well, one, one colleague suggested to me 15 years ago, and I kind of laughed at him when he said it. He said, well, on the National Institutes of Health and on the National Science Foundation, and start all over again. And I, 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 don't, I don't think quite along such lines, because it's really necessary to do the, the, the kinds of, of standard research that, that, that's being done and flesh out the existing paradigms and, and learn more. However, there also needs to be a way of enriching and funding and enhancing attempts to 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 for for challenging paradigms that say hey you know the earth is not flat after all i have evidence that it's round and i'd like to go that way so we've created an institute to do this and this is a new institute from the ground up it's called 
the Institute for Venture Science. It's new. It's it's now on the web. It's it's www.ivsci.org, and we're trying to put it together. This idea, this institute, is designed to fund promising ideas that challenge conventional thinking. That's all we do: promising ideas that challenge conventional thinking. And our idea, um, uh, the way it, we plan to, to work it is, uh, well, if you take the, the round earth idea, so, so someone submits a round earth uh, idea in a flat earth society, and we ask the flat earth people to comment on it. Of course, we know what they're going to say. This is the biggest nonsense uh, that I've ever, ever seen. But the, the uh, um, scientist who, who submits the, the idea has a chance to rebut and the people who listen to this debate between the flat earth and round earth people are people outside the field. They don't care if the answer, the right answer, turns out to be flat earth or round earth. They want to hear the evidence, and they're looking at it objectively. And, and so if they find that the topic is really important and that the proposer has defended him or herself really well, then it gets a high priority for funding. But that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is this. If, if you get funding uh, to pursue the round earth idea, we're going to find other laboratories up to maybe even 10 or 12 different laboratories around the world who share your vision of round earth. And we're going to give them money also to pursue it. And what happens then is that that creates a critical mass and the critical mass can't be ignored. It's, it's easy to say that, you know, Professor XYZ, he's a crackpot, don't pay any attention to him. And I can tell you that happens time after time. It's really simple to uh, push some ad hominem remarks that debase and uh, discredit investigators, but it's hard to do it if there are 10 of them or 12 of them coming from, from different countries using different approaches and all find that the earth is round instead of the, the earth is flat. And the prediction is with, that with this critical mass of people, if they've got the goods, if they're right, revolution will come in short order. It won't be more than, than a few years before this happens, and this will bring paradigm shifts. Imagine 50 different areas of science with paradigm shifts coming practically year after year. That's our vision, and I think we can do it. And, and this is going to change the course of science uh, in a measurable way very quickly. If we can get the funding, we're looking for private funding for visionary philanthropists who think that science is really important to solve for its own sake and to solve the huge problems of humanity. I think it's really critical that this gets going uh, fairly soon. Uh, so your book, which is, it seems to be half, half textbook, half graphic novel, who is the intended audience for, for this book? Good question. <laughs> I asked myself that question, and, and it's somewhere between um, the professionals in the field and people who know nothing about, about the field. I think it's necessary, if you have an, an idea that makes sense, as uh, it was Niels Bohr who said, you should be able to explain it to your grandmother. Well, in Niels Bohr's day, you know, Niels Bohr was the guy who invented the solar system model of the, of the atom. In his day, grandmothers usually, um, usually didn't have science backgrounds. Nowadays, lots of grandmothers have PhDs in physics, so it doesn't exactly 
apply, but but I think that you you get the sentiment. If it's a good idea, it needs to be simple and explainable, and 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 that's the principle that that I used in preparing this book. That it should it it shouldn't talk down to the experts at all. Yet it should be accessible to to uh, those who have no experience in the field, and that's what I found. The reaction has been an enormously uh, uh, positive, and the book has become really popular among among various groups some of the uh, the people who have been entrenched in the field a few have criticized it but mostly it's a kind of hands-off uh, sort of approach as though the material didn't exist we'll see how things go in the future meanwhile it's safe to to ignore it but the popularity among lay people I guess it, it has been a, a, a enormous and I I guess the intended audience, to summarize it, uh, is a wide range from lay people to uh, budding scientists all the way to experts in the field of water. Excellent. Thank you, Jerry. Okay, my pleasure. Dr. Jared Paulus.